This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 20, recorded on December 9th, 2019. Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah, and I'm here with Dr. Fawner and Dr. Keller. How are we doing today? Pretty good. Can't complain. Yeah, yeah pretty good. Uh, students had an exam today, didn't they? They did. They did. They did. did indeed. Bum, yes. bum, bum. Dun, dun, dun. There's not much we want to talk about right now. <laughs> Short and sweet um, to the point. I we have, like we right. have some very smart students. Yes, There's we no do. Doubt. Yeah, actually, we do. Somebody no, got I'm, 100% I'm on the exam. That's kind of neat, man. And yeah. that, that, that exam, uh, you know, it had a few questions that were... Uh, very difficult. That's right. Very is this difficult. the last exam before the final, too? It is. For microbiology, well, it is. Yeah. Okay. Finals are next week. Can you believe that? Oof, that's a happy holiday, early Christmas present that I'll definitely take. Yeah, yeah, no, coming up. The, it's semester. I, I can't believe semester's, semester is almost over. Almost yeah. over. It does. It goes fast. Yeah, yeah. Especially once we hit core. Yeah, right? I'll take it. Yeah. And, you know, it. although we've only, Fawner and I have only been here for four months now or so, right? Six well, months I, almost. I felt, almost six months. I feel pretty almost well. Almost six months. I feel yeah. pretty well integrated now. I yeah, like no, I've always I feel been like here. I've been here for years. We'll Hopefully, call you Fawner. That's good. Thank you, <laughs> Keller. Sure. Hopefully, we'll be here a lot longer, but it feels like I've been here for Well, we'll see what three, your uh, end of year evaluation looks like. That's, if any students uh, are listening, true. be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Fill out those emails. Uh, all right. Uh, anything we want to talk about before we get into uh, today's birthday and today's topic? I don't think so. We have a pretty cool topic today on medical ethics, and yes, even we though do. we had a little bit of an extended break due to the holidays, uh, we're going to have... I'll just few, blame you for that. That's fine. Everybody blames me. Um, yes. We can, we'll have a few... <laughs> yes. We'll have a few episodes uh, being pumped out over the next month or so, so stay yeah, tuned. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to record another episode here within the next couple of weeks to make up for our long hiatus. Yes. Cool. Okay. So, uh, December 9th, 1926, who was born that day? We have Henry Way Kendall, and he was an American nuclear physicist. He shared the 1990 Nobel Prize for Physics with Jerome Isaac Friedman and Richard E. Taylor, and they obtained experimental evidence for the existence of the subatomic particles known as, is it quarks or quarks? Quarks? I think quarks. Quarks? Quarks. Quarks. Okay, got it. That's that's how I would say it, but I that probably, doesn't mean I'm right. Well, we'll just assume you're we'll right and move on. Well, so, well, quarks. <laughs> uh, thankfully, I'm not a physicist. That sounded rude. Um, I wish I was smart enough to be a physicist. There we go. Yeah, right. Oh, easy, so, uh, easy now. I think us biologists are... Uh, I like to be self-deprecating. But, well, um, you're definitely quarky. I, I like that. Ah, I like uh, what you did. Oh, so sad. Bully for you. Uh, but what? Uh, to study the internal structure of the proton... They worked with a linear accelerator that was recently opened at Stanford, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, recently opened back in back the, then. Yeah, back, yeah, then. back then, yeah. And the uh, electrons were accelerated to an energy of about 20,000 million electron volts and directed against a target of liquid hydrogen. Uh, this guy was pretty famous for a lot of things, right? Um, he helped found the Union of Concerned Scientists in 1969. Mm-hmm. 
That uh, was in in concerns to uh, what was it? Was was that like nuclear war or uh, the climate change? Well, if I'm not exactly sure, actually. Huh, Could be either, yes. Could something for either. us to look up and clarify for next <laughs> that, episode. That's right. <laughs> but in 1997, he did, uh, in conjunction with the Kyoto Climate Summit, he helped produce a statement that was signed by nearly 2,000 scientists calling for action on global warming. And look how far we've come. It is 2019, and we're still calling for action on global warming, or at least increased action. Well, I mean, it's a Chinese hoax. Well, apparently, according right. to some. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Do we want to get into this? No, we're going to move on. <laughs> Should we open that can of We're, we're going to move on. So, uh, pretty cool guy, 2%, I think. 2%, Fawner, 2%. 2%. Remember this. <laughs> uh, you know, I think he's a pretty cool guy, right? Nobel Prize, those are not easy to come by. And, uh, they no, know, definitely took, not. No. Took, took, took some action outside of science. I would know. be interested, though, for our next episode to find out exactly what he was concerned with. Yeah. Right, right. The or Union of Concerned Lord. Scientists. Yes. That'll well, be topic number uh, one. Uh, we can Google it as as we go here. Okay. okay. But the main focus of today's show, before we get to the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is a pretty cool uh, group name. It is. Sounds like it could make for a good Facebook page, too. Or movie. Or movie, too. Ooh. I like that. Maybe a CW sitcom. Anyway, uh, today's show is going to center on medical ethics, right? And I guess whenever I was going through school... Um, and thinking about where our students are at in their kind of academic career and thinking about any of my philosophy or medical ethics courses, it's not that I didn't take it seriously, but it was more of the easier type of course on the easier end of the spectrum, right? Because compared to other courses, I'm sure all of us have taken genetics, micro, biochem, an ethics course, maybe it's just easy for an ethical person. But sometimes I feel like medical ethics courses don't get their proper credit, don't get their proper due. Chime in if I'm way off. No, base I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. And, I, you know, in, in, in the sciences, I think we're looking at more facts and a lot of facts mm. and putting those facts together like a puzzle. And not to say that aren't facts and ethics, but there's more even feelings and emotions. I mean, yeah. you know. When you talk about ethics, what is ethical now may not be the same next century. Yeah. Sure. And it it's depends, ever evolving. Yeah. It depends on technology as well, right? Sure. One of the things that we're going to talk about, for example, is let's say uh, DNRs or do not resuscitate, mm -hmm. right? This would not have been a an ethical dilemma a hundred years ago when mm -hmm. we did not have uh, sophisticated CPR oh, true, type true. equipment, right? So, so medical ethics evolves uh, as as we go with with different new technologies, obviously. And I think it's sometimes over not overlooked again, but overshadowed by the fact that at its core, medical ethics and the area of medical ethics is at its core is quite simple, right? It involves examining a specific problem usually concerning a clinical medical case and using values, facts, and logic to decide what the best plan of action should be. And, you know, I guess some ethical problems can be pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? Right versus wrong. What's the best thing to do for your patient versus what you definitely shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. But then as we're going to talk about and as Delbert brought up, some of them can be a little bit more complicated and some of them can change from case to case or patient to patient, especially when you have like conflicting values, right? So I guess that's why a proper ethical background and obviously proper moral background 
is key when it comes to tackling these different ethical concerns. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, when we talk about medical ethics and we talk about medical professionals, uh, doctors, nurses, etc., I think uh, we tend to think, oh, it's an individual necessarily making decisions. But a lot of medical facilities, hospitals, rehab centers, etc., have uh, medical ethics boards mm -hmm. where if there is any sort of uh, gray area where you don't necessarily know what you want to do or can do, you can uh, always bring these up to the uh, uh, medical boards. Yep, I agree. So what are some of the kind of possible issues or problems that could potentially be faced by one of our you know, current med students when they eventually become doctors and start practicing in the future? Should um, we do... Um, before we get into problems, should we do sort of what are some of the uh, key values in deciding uh, how to approach a medical ethics issue? Sure. I mean, either or. But please, by all means, go forward with the uh, ethical issues. Go. No? No? Is, is that, I, I feel like if, if we go over what the parameters are before we get into discussion, a long discussion on issues, that might be better. Sure. It's your world. Go for it. <laughs> he's being it's, sarcastic. The it's the easiest way to go. He's, That's being, what he's being sarcastic. The path it. of yeah. least resistance. Least resistance. Yeah. Least resistance. No, let's talk about you know the five what five basic principles on deciding um, ethical issues. And and what's important is we we even uh, now include this in our in our education here at right. LeCom with with the city training, everything. So it there's a big overlap between research ethics mm -hmm. and and ethics in, in the clinical practice. I agree. Yeah. So one of the first ones that are uh, that is effectively uh, talked about is autonomy or patient autonomy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's effectively def defined as the patient having the basic right to decide what they want done to them, right, medically. Right. And that is really, really closely linked with our topic today, which we'll get to in a moment, and that's the DNR. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And th that can be, again... As with most of these uh, principles, that can be subject to change based on the context of your patient, right? Right. Um, in cases of what's known as incompetence, so that's when the patient is legally deemed unable to make rational decisions. In cases of incapacity, where the patient is clinically deemed unable to make rational decisions, or when the patient has some threat to themselves or others, and that's usually observed in mental health patients. Right. So even though uh, a, a, a medical professionals are uh, taught to respect autonomy, that can be challenged uh, in in these cases that you that you talked about. And I guess that's where sometimes this can be very difficult and complex. Is there's not a purely, I mean, there is right and wrong, and that's those are the guiding forces, but there is a gray area when it comes to each of these five basic principles, again, dependent on context. Right. You know, which, which, which is what makes ethics a hard area to, to teach in and to, you know, work within. Yeah, I agree. You know, there's, there's, not, there's not always a right and wrong, like we said. Sometimes there's two rights. Right. I, I mean, I like what you said there, to teach this stuff. I think it would be fascinating to teach this, but I think it can also be quite difficult. Yes. In that, I mean, there's always something where, okay, this is a principle here, 
but here is a caveat to that principle in this case versus that case. Which is why it's good to have boards. I, I'm glad Dover brought that up. But it's really important that you have a group of people yeah. and not a, a single person right. uh, overseeing your, your ethics within a clinical practice. I agree. I mean, particularly because, I mean, we're prone to error, right? I mean, all humans are prone to error. Obviously, you don't want your doctors making mistakes, but, mm-hmm. I mean, mistakes happen, right? When everybody has varying opinions right. and, you know, inherent biases and what I think might be conducive to, let's say, physician-assisted death or suicide, my opinions on the matter could differ from yours, could differ from Keller's, uh, could differ from really anybody's. So. Or even in complicated diseases where there are multiple uh, options for treatment moving forward yeah. that have different benefits or uh, different side effects, which one do you pick, et cetera, so on and so forth. So b- based on that, effectively doing good for the patient, the uh, second basic value in medical eth- ethics is beneficence, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the idea that you should always do good for your patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, always take the action or recommend a course of action that is in the patient's best interest. And uh, this becomes especially important when the uh, patient lacks autonomy, either because of incompetence, incapacity, or uh, et cetera, right? Yeah. And this is purely when it comes to the medical provider. This is right mm-hmm. on their end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, always looking out for the best interests of your patient mm-hmm. are good. Uh, and I know we're going to be talking about um, physician-assisted suicide a little bit. And, and so that goes along with, with beneficence and autonomy. So they're different but closely linked together. Right. Yeah. The other thing that's usually talked about with uh, beneficence is non-maleficence, and that is do no harm. Right. And uh, effectively, they're, they're intimately linked because beneficence is what you would do. Non-maleficence is what you would not do. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So you're making sure you're not harming the patient. Uh, but sometimes uh, you may have to recommend a course of action that uh, has a harmful unintended consequence, but the benefit is greater than that harmful unintended consequence, and then you still go with that treatment option. Lesser of two evils. Right. Lesser of two evils, exactly. In that case, you're talking about the principle of double effect, right? Yeah. So that sort of comes under non-maleficence, and it's called the principle of double effect, absolutely, where the the unintended medical consequence is acceptable because it's outweighed by and is proportionally smaller than the intended medical benefit. Examples of that, say, could be uh, removal of an organ or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Uh, and again, this is something that it, at some point in time, any physician is going to have to deal with and weigh right. the pros and cons and decide. Right. And obviously, hopefully, more of a team aspect, you know, come to a joint decision with uh, attending physicians and uh, also a relationship with the family as well, like explaining this situation to the patient, their family, and hopefully an optimal joint decision can be made. But a lot of these cases can be, I think, really not risky. What what am I trying to say? Um, There's never... There's hardly ever going to be one treatment where, okay, this is 100% going to be something that fixes you or helps you or treats the disease. Always you're going to have that chance for an unintended, possibly risky side effect. Yeah, yeah. And with with all of these, particularly with the, uh, uh, the principle of double effect, 
uh, and both with beneficence and non-maleficence, autonomy trumps all of these. If mm -hmm. a patient says, yeah. I don't want X, Y, Z, and they're not in, incompetent or incapacitated, then, then you can't really force Your any treatment tied, on yeah. the patient. Absolutely. Yeah. I see that a lot in every single hospital drama that my wife likes to watch. Yeah. yeah absolutely. You know, there's always that, that patient that says, no, I, I don't want this. And it usually comes back to... Um, maybe a better explanation of what is expected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, um, a lot of transparency that needs to be mm -hmm. out there. There needs to be a lot of explanation. That gets to our next point. Well, uh, and, and the, th that's the other thing about, I mean, that's why informed consent is so important. So right? important. Yeah. And then, but, but then we've talked about this before, is is informed consent truly informed? Does does a lay person know what they need to know in terms of a medical background to un understand complicated they procedures, et cetera, so on and so forth? Well, and that puts the burden even more on the medical provider and the doctor to communicate and speak with the patient and or the patient's family in a way that they can understand it, right? right? But you have to have the, the, the patient or the family tell you exactly in their own words what they think is going to happen. Otherwise, right. how what do they you know they really yeah. understand yeah. You know, the pros and the cons of, of what you're doing? Uh, and, and, and you're right, Color. That brings us to our uh, second point here, which is uh, veracity or truth-telling, mm -hmm. is that no matter what the procedure is, you have to tell the patient the truth. And that includes risks, benefit, prognoses, and even mistakes made. Yeah, you can't, even if mistakes are corrected, you, you still can't have, have to divulge. Formed consent if you right. don't have all of the facts to make that consent. Yeah. yeah, and this one can be also, you know, kind of a gray area, and can also be challenged as well, right? Because if the medical provider suspects that once the truth is told to a patient, that they may harm themselves or harm as a others. result, or mm -hmm. harm others. Then you know, I guess a uh, you know a judgment call has to be. Taken. Well, you can withhold facts, but you can't lie. Exactly. Right. Yeah, you can yeah. delay providing the truth sure. for a short period of time, but eventually, you, yeah, you yeah. cannot lie. Absolutely. Uh, go ahead. The last point. The last point uh, that most people talk about in terms of medical ethics is justice. Uh, or medical justice, mm -hmm. and that effectively uh, 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 talks about distributing uh, the benefits and burdens of medical care across all uh, branches of society. Mm -hmm. uh, so proper allocation of resources. But uh, sometimes that's confused with equal allocation of resources. That's but, different. And yeah. that's different, absolutely. Because you could have two people walk into an ER, one walks into an ER an hour before person number two, but and is still waiting, but person number two comes in and has a much more urgent well, that's medical the purpose. care. Yeah, triage. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so now that we've been through all of that, I, I went back and I'm looking at the some of the list of things that we've uh, talked about that, that our students might see. The common problems or some, issues some they just could common, face in just, the future, I mean, yeah. they're just, you know, common types of issues. And it's interesting because uh, we do cover a lot of this in our curriculum, and we 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 have a medical ethics course, and yeah. you know how to treat how to treat your patients appropriately. Um, you know, I, I'm looking at number two, like you you can't accept money from pharmaceutical companies anymore. That was that used to be oh, a big thing. Standard, yeah, standard, right? I mean, that was standard yeah. dinner or dinner or anything, even oh, accepting. Yeah. That's a, that was those were perks of the job the that perks. a lot of physicians grew to you know yeah. accept and rely on. Sure, yeah. and, and I mean clearly you can see where the bias at least comes in, if if not an ethical violation, but you can't even accept a pen from them. 
Yeah. You know, at this point, like, it's very strict. And, you know, I, I, I somewhat agree. I mean, you can't have that bias whenever you're, you know, uh, promoting a drug or providing an option for drug treatment to a patient. I mean, that bias should be as minimal as possible. Absolutely. I mean, look at some of the other ones. Um, I mean, some, some, some of these to me are, are straightforward. Getting yeah. romantically involved with a patient. I mean, yeah, you should on. probably maybe avoid <laughs> yeah. that one yeah, no. if I had to take a guess. Well, covering up a mistake. I mean, clearly that's an ethics violation. Right. Yes. Right. Right? Right. I, I mean, and when we do our interviews here, that's sometimes things mm-hmm. that we yeah. get on. You know, are, are, are these types of issues, you know, would you report an impaired colleague? I mean, that's one of the biggest things. Yeah. It's, you know, nobody wants to be called a, a, a snitch, right? Right. 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 right? But at the same point, that the, the patient is your, is your center, not your yeah. colleague. Yeah. Your colleague, right, if, if they've done something wrong, they need to be accountable for yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, or go ahead, you were going to say something. Uh, I was going to say, in terms of like covering up mistakes, I mean, for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, mistakes are fixable, right? Yeah. Like for them, I mean, obviously, you know, there are some extreme cases. Death. Right, right, right. <laughs> but for the most part, most uh, mistakes are, are fixable. Absolutely. So, so the, the, the right approach is to admit to it and set corrective and, action. And move yeah. forward. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is something that you know, one of some of our students may face in their future, maybe not on their own making a mistake and covering it up. But what happens if you have a colleague who you work with, and you know that maybe they messed up, and now they're actively trying to, you know, cover cover up their mistake without owning up to their actions? Exactly. Yeah. You know, look at this one here: practicing defensive medicine to avoid malpractice lawsuits. That's interesting. That that's an interesting one. I've yeah. never really thought about that. I, I I take a defensive medicine to mean you know I'm going to make sure that I do the bare minimum, but I'm not going to to do anything. Maybe suggest any ex- risky approaches. Extreme, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, because I'm afraid you're going to come back. Well, I mean, the or threat of experimental malpra- treatment. Yeah, or experimental yeah. treatment. Yeah. Well, the threat of malpractice is probably is arguably as high as it's ever been. Right. I mean. Well, I mean, especially mistake. in this country. Yeah. 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 I guess that's a good point. I mean, one mistake or one – we talked about an unintended consequence of a treatment. I mean, doctors or, and a good physician will be explicitly clear saying, okay, 80% of patients respond favorably to this. Uh, 20%, you might get this development of this symptom. And if that were to happen, you know, God forbid uh, – there's always that threat of malpractice. That's scary to have hanging over your head with every decision you could make. I mean, it's very scary. And, you know, and part of the unintended consequence of a lot of malpractice lawsuits is the fact that a lot of professions are now uh, cost prohibitive for, or a lot of specialties are cost prohibitive for doctors because their malpractice costs, insurance costs are so high, yeah. they don't enter those fields. Mm-hmm. Or it's not even uh, you can't make a decent living being a you know a physician of that specialty. Something else I also through our research and you know gathering information on this topic, and I, I think this is something that needs to be brought to the forefront is the fact that the field of medical ethics it's not just a thought process, right? No, our students and. All physicians, ideally, should have adequate people skills. 
you know, um, not only being aware of the facts of a case and knowing what the appropriate treatment is, but also being able to effectively present your decision as the physician in a way that, you know, bolsters and wins over the confidence of the patient, their family, and even your fellow colleagues. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's hard to teach uh, people skills, right? There are some uh, schools uh, that teach sort of bedside manner mm. type thing, right? Well, uh, all our students have to pr- pass the physical exam portion right. yeah. of, of level two. So there, there's that. But yeah. But that's a minimum standard, and it's it's hard to treat to teach people to be people people. And you hear that? I, I mean, you do hear that. I'm not good at it. <laughs> you, I mean, you hear that in different cases, right? Where people will share their scary stories about going to visit their doctor and being afraid of being diagnosed with whatever, and the doctor just comes across as I don't know, maybe cold, callous, you know, sure, very gives you dismissive. Yeah, yeah dismissive. Mm-hmm. Gives you a bad taste yeah. in your mouth. Mm-hmm. You know? And, you know, some physicians are great and some physicians are of that spectrum where they just don't have a good bedside manner. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh, I wonder if it's, uh, you know, like if it takes a certain type of personality to go through medical school mm-hmm. that maybe attracts sort of not super social, you know, super outgoing. Well, I don't know. We yeah. have... a a large student body, so we yeah. have a lot of different personalities. Varieties, yeah. You know, we've got a lot of outgoing students as oh, well yeah. as. Some, oh yeah, we do. Yeah, we I, do. I wonder. I wonder if really more so, it might depend on the practice. I mean, somebody who's not seeing patients that often, like a pathologist, may not right. be a people right. person. Yeah, I, sure. You know, and we we, you know, we we think about that often, but a student can change too. I've seen I've seen some students that that start out and you wonder why would they go into x y or z and then yeah. they become a wonderful x y or z. Right. Well, I mean know. think about they're coming right out of college, right? Or most some of our students are coming right out of college, others are a few years removed. Mm-hmm. But when I was starting grad school, yeah, I could maybe talk, but I wasn't as <laughs> maybe outgoing. At least a, more of a confident show. too. Yeah, it's exactly. And that grows. Yeah. That can yeah, be I, that can be nurtured, and you can teach sure. that to an extent in your students, especially through the courses that we offer. Well, I think it's important that that we do the, those things because you know there's there's so many instances where ethics is going to come up in practice, like to resolve disputes between you know patients and their families. Yeah, it's just one example. So yeah, no, there are a lot of uh, uh, ethical medical ethical issues, but. Uh, we have uh, a, a small list of uh, the ones that we think are most controversial, all right? Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to try to touch on most of these. So we have uh, physician-assisted death or physician-assisted suicide, right? That's highly controversial. We have DNRs or do not resuscitate orders. Mandatory vaccines. What do we feel about the ethics of mandatory vaccines? We've got uh, gene editing, particularly with CRISPR-Cas now these days, becoming extremely popular. Mm-hmm. And uh, ownership of self, right? Ownership of your tissue, ownership of your DNA, ownership of your organs. Which should you, should think you would... be able to sell a kidney for however much, right? Et cetera, so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah. So in no particular order, which one do you guys want to talk about? Oof. Well, want to talk about... Uh... 
physician-assisted suicide first or death? Well, I think sure. they go along with the DNR. Maybe start with the, the DNR real quick. And, yeah, sure. And go from there. So I, because I, I don't know. Maybe it's me. I think the the DNR is the least controversial of these issues because right. this is the patient's wishes. Yeah. Um, it's not like you've killed the patient. The patient has, you know, ceased organ function or or what. And you know, you want to give resuscitation to them. I don't think that's as controversial as physician-assisted suicide. Yeah. So, I I don't know. My 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 parents have you know they've just gone through. I'm not going to tell you what they had, what they signed, but yeah, you know they just went through the whole process of putting their wills together a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, and you know it's it's a big thought. You know what what oh, yeah, do that's you want? A big decision. You know? Yeah, and I think it, it, not only is it a big decision for for the patient, it's probably more of a bigger decision, or will have a larger impact on the family. Right. Well, I guess what are situations in which a DNR can be challenged, right? Uh, and again, I'm going off of not only what I've read, but also I'm also a fan of hospital dramas, right? Yeah, right. I was just thinking like uh, once a season it, 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 or every some season. cop dramas too, yeah, like right. SVU or Law and Order. Mm-hmm. I've had a couple episodes about that. So can DNRs be challenged, right? I mean, I do and, believe so. Uh, but so the thing about D, I mean. If you are at a point needing resuscitation, there's not much time to. If you don't have a living will, right? Exactly. There's not much. And I time think to that's where it really time. becomes an issue because then you're going to ask the medical proxy, right? Mm-hmm. And in that case, the medical proxy is supposed to know the wishes of the patient, and usually it's next of kin, and yeah. so uh, it starts with spouse, and then right. goes to I believe parents or children, depending. But then there on, could also be a dispute there, right? and that's where I think the disputes uh-huh. really come in is. When there's a lack of a DNR. So my advice, like I, I'm clear, I have it written down. I know what my, my parents want. Yeah. Right. And, you know, while while I may or may not agree with them, I'm not saying either way. Yeah. Or let's just say a situation where somebody may or may not agree with it. That's the wishes and it will be followed. Right. You may feel different, but if, right. if you're, you know, parents don't want to be resuscitated. I think it also depends on the disease yes. and the condition of the patient. Yeah. Right, like if you fall down and you know crack your head and you're and otherwise you're in good health and you know you might want to try resuscitative techniques if yeah. you're you know terminal cancer begs, and yeah that begs the question what's the extent of I mean yeah resuscitation means X Y Z but so maybe fill out a living will I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. what are conditions and context of resuscitating sure. versus they're not They're usually outlined, right? So I pretty mean, specifically, yeah, 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 they'll say like upon heart arrest or you know, or, or brain arrest, or you know what I mean, or mm-hmm. brain activity ceasing, et cetera, so on and so forth. Okay. Right. Well, maybe we should switch gears then. I don't know. Unless does anybody have anything? Yeah, else I mean, to add I, I, as far as DNR is concerned, I mean, I don't think I don't think that's an eth- I mean, yeah, I don't, it, it is an ethical issue for a doctor to but, sort of see someone in need of help and cannot give it. That sure is a you know, in terms of because they take an oath to try yeah, to help everybody. Absolutely. Right? But what I mean, what if they decide they're not going to follow the DNR? Now that's an that's that's an ethical. But that would definitely be a violation be on, of yeah. medical ethics. And even I think though that they're and the law. But I think the law. They would be in. Yeah, I'm not a lawyer and I would never give law advice, mm-hmm. but to me, to me, that's not the same thing. Right. You know, you, yeah. you have a written document, yeah. but, but that's for lawyers to decide. And that's probably yeah. why I'm not one. Well, let's switch gears to sure. uh, physician assisted death then. So in this case, this is the practice and, you know, it's been heavily debated for 
probably hundreds, thousands of years, right? Mm-hmm. In some form. But PAD or physician-assisted death is the practice where a doctor provides a potentially lethal medication to a patient who is terminally ill and suffering at the patient's request, right? Um, and this patient will then, at their choosing, take this medication or not take it, but has the option to take this medication at the time of their choosing in order to end their life. And usually for someone to be allowed to do that, they have to be declared uh, competent. Yes. Uh, There has to be autonomy. Right. And I mean, like we had mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and like I just stated, um, this has been a very hotly debated topic for many, many years. And... There are different fields of opinion about this, right? Well, when you think about the Hippocratic Oath, the Hippocratic Oath suggests that this idea, this debate topic, was outside of the physician's professional responsibilities. But even that has been contentious, right? There have been disagreements over, is this part of the physician's workload, if you will, or is this outside of the auspices of the physician? Right. And, you know, uh, it, it got famous in the in the United States, obviously, because it was challenged on the federal level and it got all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said it was a state's issue mm-hmm. that the uh, uh, federal government has no business legislating what the states want to do. And then it went to states. And I believe uh, Oregon was the first state to allow uh, uh, physician assisted uh, death. Right. And. Uh, it was brought to the forefront, right, with, um, what was his name? Uh, Kevorkian. Kevorkian, yeah. Mm-hmm. Doc, Dr. Death. What, was, Dr. He, was he? Death? Dr. Was Dr. Death. Dr. Death. Yes. yes, he was. And uh, he got in trouble not because it was a violation necessarily that it was illegal to do. He mm-hmm. got in trouble because he himself administered yeah. the... Uh, at a patient's request. Right, at he, the patient's request. Yeah, he personally administered, and he wasn't... Uh, he was a pathologist and not a clinician, right? But, yeah, I mean, yeah. he was still a medical doctor. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But still, he, what, went to prison for about eight years yep. uh, after he directly uh, administered uh, euthanasia to the patient. Um, now, had the patient, uh, him or herself, I don't remember if it was a male or not, had the patient themselves uh, administered that treatment, uh, uh, would, have been, would have been fine. Yeah, he would yeah. have been exonerated, I suppose. Based on the laws uh, at the time, right? Yeah. But uh, like you said, there have been, you know, various federal legal challenges to the constitutionality of the prohibitions against PAD, uh, what a few Supreme Court cases. Um, it's basically within the states, right? Where yeah, now this it's the state's issue, decided. Right, right. Yeah. Now, what, so what, what do we think of that in terms of a medical med- – in terms of a doctor facing a medical ethics, now, do these states, do we know if these states allow for exemptions? Let's say you are a doctor in Oregon and then someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm terminally ill. There's no medical procedure that can save my life. I'd like to terminate my own life. Can, the, can that physician refuse? And does that create a medical ethics problem? If that doctor refuses to help or comply with the, what, something like Death with Dignity Act that Oregon has, I mean, this, I guess the patient could always go to another doctor who will comply and help him or her 
but I would still think that the doctor still has a right to say no, if I'm not mistaken. I, right? I would believe so. Again, yeah. I'm not a lawyer, and I will not play one on TV, yeah, yeah. but I will say, <laughs> I don't think you can force somebody to kill somebody yeah, else if no, they don't no, want to, or, or have to... a hand in, in, in somebody's you know suicide. Yeah. So I guess, uh, to me, those are two different issues. One is, um, you know, you've got somebody who does want to help versus somebody who doesn't. Well, there's plenty of opportunities out there to find somebody, a, a clinician in these states that, that would help with physician-assisted suicide. I guess I, from a big picture aspect, I guess I look at it as in these cases where all medical practices, techniques, procedures, what have you, are going to be unsuccessful with treating and helping the patient. The patient is nearing the end and they don't want, if, if they so choose, they shouldn't have to live out their final months, possibly even years in excruciating pain and, yeah. you know, have that option to what they call it, you know, die with dignity, the death with dignity. Yeah. Um, I, I think in extreme cases of illness, when you get to a point where, your life and the lives of the people around you are being destroyed by that illness. And uh, there is no medical intervention. You are in extreme pain and discomfort, etc. And uh, uh, something like a physician-assisted death is the only way to sort of escape that uh, inevitable suffering and sort of maintain some self-dignity and self-preservation. Uh, I personally think that you should be allowed to do that. I mean, uh, I don't necessarily advocate for it, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying that people should have that option, right? Well, what are some <clears throat> of the – go ahead, sorry. My <laughs> opinions, you know, uh, it, it, it can be a hot-button topic because it's an emotional thing too. Of course, yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm torn on the issue. At one side, I hear exactly what you're saying and I think – Th that that's important. I mean, we there's no law against euthanizing your dog. My you know my my uh, I guess gra grandpa in law I don't know, my 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 kid's grandpa in law just had to put down his dog, and yeah. you know we we do that out of love and compassion. But yet nice. it's illegal to do it for your loved ones. Yeah, we make sure that when when we have prisoners that are executed that it's as humane mm -hmm. as possible. But yes. yet. And pain-free. Mm -hmm. And yet, here you're asking somebody to live in a painful state right. because, you know, it's illegal for them to seek relief to that pain. But yet, part of me also believes in the sanctity of life right. and, and, and the, you know, some of the principles here that we've already talked about of trying to maintain that. So Absolutely. It's, it's, a yeah, hard, yeah. it's a hard issue. That's why it's an ethical issue. Yeah, and think about, think about the cons just to play kind of devil's advocate here, right? What are some of the fears if this were to become legalized nationwide uh, and a standard possible well, if course of If it's not regulated, I mean. It's not regulated, right. yeah. You know, you're looking at maybe what, – what if, what if there's a breakthrough in, in – you give somebody six months, but there's a breakthrough in a month. Yeah. That's you know, I, I mean, there's that sure. yep. possibility. And so just like with everything we've talked about so far, you need to be transparent. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the pros and cons? I mean, some people at the moment might feel like they want to end the suffering, but yet all they have to do is get through a window. You know, sure, maybe yeah. drug recovery, things well, like yeah. that. I mean, about so, it. suffering is relative as well. I right? guess, yeah. I mean, that's... So I, I think it has to be for certain. I, 
I think we would have to put together a series of, of, of laws and regulations that define sort of what illnesses, right, uh, specifically what uh, 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 diseases, so on and so forth, where maybe excellent uh, uh, palliative care is not sufficient, right, or would not relieve symptoms or suffering. Think about it from our students' perspective or the physician's perspective. They're getting into this field and this career, hopefully, because they want to help people mm, and hopefully. maybe to make money. But, <laughs> right. you know, the, the ultimate altruistic goal is to help your patient and treat whatever problems they may have. Yeah. Would a physician – there are some physicians who, if they happen to, let's say, be working in Oregon, like you had said, Chris – if the patient came to them and said, listen, doctor, um, I've sought every possible treatment, nothing's working, I have six months to live, um, I would like to be prescribed, you know, end-of-life treatment. Now that doctor has to weigh on his or her conscience. That's they hard, are yeah. now affect, They're going to be ending this person's life indirectly. Right. No, but, it's something you have to live with, obviously. You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, uh, polls show that while most Physicians favor legal access to physician-assisted death. Only about 30% are willing to directly provide such assistance if legally permitted. And that's a pretty big discrepancy. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. would be willing to do that. It almost becomes a part of palliative care, part of yeah. part of a specialty. Yeah, that's if true. If you think about it, you know, I mean, if if you're asking for somebody else to do it. But I mean, again, I always think you don't have one decision. You need a group of people that are highly trusted to make right. laws and decisions like absolutely. that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I agonize sometimes about, oh, did I say the proper thing here or did I misspeak in class and say this right. word instead of that? <laughs> I could just imagine coming well, home. Yes, you do. Was well, that yeah, admonition <laughs> too harsh oh, on the no, student? No, no, no. <laughs> um, but I could just imagine I'm coming sure. home and being asked, how'd your day go? Oh, I'm, you know, not too bad. I just had to administer life-ending medication. Right. Oh, no, I, that's different. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, a, that's a big that's, burden to carry, you know, in your life, multiple times even. Right. But, you know, in a lot of these states that do allow it, uh, in, to be fair, uh, in most cases, they have to prove to a, a panel of doctors and officials that those individuals seeking uh, this uh, treatment must have a terminal illness and a prognosis of six months or less oh, okay. left so to live. So it's yeah. not like, yeah. oh, you may have a few years left. It's usually you've only got six months or less. And uh, your case is going to get worse and worse, and then your death will be so miserable that we would, you know, sort of allow you to, you know, yeah, get out early. So to and speak. that's what yeah. a lot, of, like you said, a lot of these states are, you know, they have to have a, a prognosis of six months or less to live, and um, it's now being that oversight that we were discussing, that intense oversight, if it's going to be legalized, that oversight is definitely warranted. Yeah, it sounds very judicious. Uh-huh. That was a good one. You're welcome. But, you know, uh, numbers Jeez. show that... Uh, <laughs> I'll never live that down, but... No, no. He's famous no. for being judicious now, but... Well, emails, at least. Um, You're not getting any breaks, but that's okay. You know, uh, looking looking at numbers in some of the states that have allowed this, so, for example, California, Colorado, Oregon, etc., cetera, uh, it looks... So, for example, in California, as of 2017... 
577 individuals uh, received prescriptions, but only 374 uh, went through with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Colorado, same thing, around 100 and – go ahead. Well, I, I'm reading what you're reading. Does that mean that they actually took it and, and it worked or did they take it and it didn't work? No, I, th- I think in most cases these okay. these do just, work, right? Like uh, they're, they're just reading the way yeah. it's written yeah, here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's a. I think it's a salient point. Um, I guess I and, and read salient, it. Salient, very nice, I, I, right? <laughs> Not bad. Uh, then, I had to bust out some that's right. fancy SAT words coming out of here. I love the SAT words, but that I think that speaks to a truth as well that ultimately comes down to that point of no return where the patient will decide is this is it do i actually follow through with this and you know that choice is very important and putting it in the patient's hands i think is key it's ultimately i think patients like the option yes yeah being able to control things if it gets to a certain point where exactly right but and 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 in some cases i think and i've seen some documentaries on on this in in oregon where, uh, you know, they die a relatively peaceful death before they, they have to resort to these medications. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm still reading down, down through a couple of these different states. It looks like a, over half, so about 65% of patients actually take it. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's, it's not even, it's majority, but not overwhelming. Okay. All right. Uh, anything else we want to say about that? I think that was a lot. I agree. We've got about maybe, 10 minutes or so to get to an hour. We usually like to keep these at an hour. Uh, well, what do we about something touch? like mandatory vaccine? Yeah, yeah. The, the whole Keller and I fire. can talk about that for an Yeah, for I was going to say, if we only have 10 minutes, <laughs> that might not be the way to go. But, you know, so uh, let me just take that. We can that do a part two on this as well. well. I mean, we can do a part two where we Well, I know you guys did a vaccine topics. podcast. I think We were going to come back do vaccine history and stuff yeah, like we that. Can, yeah, we can do that. Mandatory vaccine. I hate the word mandatory. I hate it. It's just because it... You know, it makes being it seem in like you're forcing you're somebody to do something we, they don't want to we, do. We yeah. are some yeah. people, right? But at the same point, you know, there are people that cannot get vaccines. Just to, they That's will right. die, mm-hmm. and so we try to keep up that herd immunity. We we try to make sure that people that can get them. And now with all these extra excuses, you know, I, let me let me ask you a question: Would you want to go to your physician or be in the hospital and get measles because your doctor decided they didn't want to get the vaccine? So I, I guess mean, I, I would not, right? No, no I would not. I wouldn't. So I, that was rhetorical, but I, you know, I just I guess it depends on who are we talking about. When we say mandatory vaccine, we typically mean the childhood schedule, mm-hmm. right? And and you know, I, I wouldn't be, want to be around kids that aren't vaccinated. I want my kids around those kids, well, yeah. even some- if they've been vaccinated, because you know, there's different levels, right? We haven't talked about titers and the effectiveness. And you know what? They're, they're not they're not necessarily mandatory, right? We we don't say that every child has to get them. What we do say sometimes well, I mean not sometimes, all times as a society is for example, you wanna attend a school or a daycare or whatever, we say, okay, you vaccines. have to be current or you're on your Correct. vaccines yeah. or, right. or you can't attend here. So you do have a choice as a parent. Go to a treehouse. Whatever yeah, exactly. You you want to isolate yourself from society, go Go right ahead. But I, they know, don't. I mean, they take their kids to Walt Disney World. That's exactly. right. And that's know? outbreak. Everybody first. gets measles. Uh-huh. You know, so. And that's something, again, thinking about, you know, on my end, I don't, I'm scared of that happening to me, potentially. But thinking uh, about... You're current on your vaccine, I, I am, take it. I am. Good, good. But <laughs> what, what I'm afraid of is just thinking about 
children. A child. And that's one thing that I never thought I would have to worry about growing up is, oh, uh, you know, my kids, of course, are going to be safe from, you know, any potential outbreaks. And especially in the past few years, the incidence of these outbreaks just appear to be climbing. And the thing about vaccines is you cannot give them other than the hepatitis vaccine at birth, right? You can't, you, you, you don't give vaccines till. Well, you other, shouldn't need to, right? Right. I mean, till like what, with, six, with, seven months of. Uh, well, I mean, we started two months with the with the DTaP, but right. um, you know, you shouldn't have to. Mom's got IgG antibodies mm-hmm. to these IgM things, right? But yeah. but well, IgG is across the yeah, placenta. But there's the concern. You, know, you want the IgA if they're not breastfeeding. That can become an sure. you know an issue. But that's you know, a and then you're looking time at, window. I mean, mm-hmm. for a chance, I'll, I'll of tell you, there's an nothing and, uh, nope. contracting it. Sure, there's nothing scarier than a sick kid. And you're like hoping that fever comes down or hoping that they stop coughing so much. Oh, jeez. Right? Having to rush to the hospital and have shortness of breath. That's why I have plants. The worst thing they do is drop a leaf. I'm like, oh, needs water. And then it drops another leaf. (laughs) (laughs) I think what's interesting, just to, you know, because we had a few minutes, something that that might be, because to me that's not an ethical situation. It's just I mean, a right versus wrong. I think it's well, a right versus wrong. Yeah. I think well, if you... well, here's here's the ethical part of it, okay. which is why I put it on the list. All right. So th- there are situations where you cannot get the vaccine, and those are medical exemptions, and you know, those should be allowed because getting the vaccine well, they have to kill, it'll kill exactly. the patient. Yeah, it's, it's, what about religious exemptions? Religious exemptions. It's exactly so. Now, so recently, uh, New York State uh, passed a law banning all exemptions other than medical. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of religious communities in New York that are up in arms about this, saying, well, that's, that, that's an infringement on my uh, First Amendment, yeah. right? And I'm sure this is going to end up in the Supreme Court yeah, at some it point. It has it to be, right? It has to. And uh, so how, where do we land on that? So, Trouble for example, uh, think of Amish populations or Hasidic Jew populations in Brooklyn. There's... A massive measles outbreak right now in the Hasidic Jew population in Brooklyn, right? Mm. And there was one, what, like, what, a decade or two ago? About a decade ago, 2009, I believe. And we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of cases, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, measles is not an easy infection. It's not something to joke about. Well, it can be lethal. I mean, and so when you have parents deciding not to get their kids vaccinated because they're worried about the the fake possibility of autism, they don't realize that these things can kill kids. Yeah. You know, that's why we have vaccines, not because it was, oh, they had the rash of measles. They died of pneumonia, giant cell pneumonia. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of concerns there. But this but- is a this is also the factor of education, right? Um, and not to sound not to sound kind of high and mighty here, but we know based on science and basic facts and logic that vaccines work. They are not associated with, you know, cases of autism, but all it takes is one idiot, and in this case, what, Andrew Wakefield, mm-hmm. who has now... Or what's her name? Jenny McCarthy. Yeah, um, Who has now <sighs> propelled forth an entire movement. Oh, they're rich. They are rich. McCarthy because and, of yeah, the all abuse, of those. Uh, it's just, of when you say that name, I just want to, like, well, gouge my ears that's out. That's something that just is still infuriates me to this day is... Sometimes I'll see on whatever show or hear uh, whatever talk show, um, she she's given a platform 
Yeah. And it's, it's similar to what you say with your, uh, oh, there are two sides to every story. Oh, let's bring on a contrarian. Let's bring on somebody who's uh, a proponent yeah. Yeah, of oh, a topic. Oh, I hate that. I hate that. There, that should be allowed. The truth in the middle usually science. somewhere, but... There is science, there are facts, There's these are public health concerns that we're making worse because we choose to turn on, you know, Channel 2. Well, I, I mean, the, me, the media will bring on someone, say, like pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine or pro-climate change and anti-climate change. And you look at that, you listen to that, and you think, oh, it's 50-50, right? Fair or, and balanced. Fair and balanced, while yeah. in fact it's 99 and 1%, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of where the science lands on these things. Now, to be fair, there are side effects to vaccines. We can't well, some of these you can get the virus from. Right. Exactly. But you and need to be transparent. It uh-huh. comes back to uh-huh. our, our ethics Veracity. talk today. If you aren't transparent, right, you can't have somebody make informed consent about the vaccines that they're using. Yeah. 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 But, you know, we're covering up, or you should see some of this fake data that I see on Facebook sometimes. Mm-hmm. And no, Facebook is the worst. Oh, no, it's yeah. amazing. And it self-perpetuates. Yeah, and a lot of people get but their you news know, from there. The whole religious thing that you brought up, I just want to say it didn't used to be an issue. Yeah. Because we had herd immunity, even That's with right. those religious exemptions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now we got people doing it for not religious exemptions, but they say they'll make up their own religion. I, you know. Worship uh, well, in this. Country, I worship the can. goose. Yeah, I mean, look out the window. We got enough of them. Right? <laughs> and, and so they, they make up their own religion, and and so you can't deny one over the other. Yeah. And now the risks of these outbreaks has increased considerably. Well, it, once you well, lose, lose not the risk, herd immunity, yeah, 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 the, the, yeah, the possibility. So we didn't have it for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're in a new reality. You're going to yeah. see these. Yeah, yeah. You're going to see these diseases again and again. Okay. I think that's a lot. I think well, it is. We have a few more subtopics that can potentially be addressed maybe on a future episode. Sure. I think, sure. You know, ethics is a broad topic. We've hit Very. the ground running here, but we can have the esteemed Dr. Keller back on. Oh, I'm invited uh, back. Multiple times. You're always invited back. Oh, okay. I, but, um, I, I, I have my own microphone. I just want I, you to know that. I think he's uh, he's on his way to becoming a permanent member here. Do we, we get a Do we get a vote? Is there a secret tribunal that will... You know, we'd have to change the that's logo. That's you too. We'd have to change You are the, the tribunal, <laughs> so if there's a negative vote, I know who it is. You'll know. <laughs> we have to change the logo of the show. <laughs> it could be like Survivor or something where he's the dissenting voice. Oh, no, I figured he was the dissenting voice. Oh, me? <laughs> no, we, we 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 like you on the show. You bring a good perspective. Well, thank you so much for that. Absolutely. Particularly when you disagree with me. I think we like he, that. I mean, That's the is, usual thing. <laughs> he is your chair, so I'm sensing a little bit of... Uh, <laughs> Arm twisting? Uh, a little bit of... No, I would never do that. Not nepotism, but <laughs> okay. Well, um, anyway, that's our that's yeah. our show for today. Any wrap up points? I think we hit everything pretty well. No, but we were going to look up, and we'll have to remember to do it. Oh, you know, I did remember. Did yes, yes. The okay. Union of Concerned Scientists. That's right. So, uh, and this is from Wikipedia, right? So, the Union of Concerned Scientists, founded in '69 by faculty and students at MIT. Mm-hmm. And uh, the founding's document says that it was formed to initiate a critical and continuing examination of governmental policy in areas where science and technology are of actual or potential significance. And 
to devise means for turning research applications away from the present emphasis on military technology and towards solutions of pressing environmental and social problems. That's a mouthful. That is. But Sounds effectively like uh, to use science for good. Well, and use it judiciously. Ju- oh, that's right. Thank you for that. <laughs> that makes my day. I had to plug that. I just had to throw it um, in there somehow. Okay, so that's our show. Like uh, we said before, we're going to have a few more episodes coming out in the next few weeks, next month or so, to make up for our kind of disappearance uh, around the Thanksgiving holiday. As always, you can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. You just have to search for The Biobusters. Uh, you can use any podcast catcher to download our episodes. You can also listen to our episodes on thebiobusters.podbean.com. You can listen to us on iHeartRadio as well because, hey, technology and these social media radio right. networks now, it's a brave new world. Um, I'm Chris Fawner, and you can find me at Fawner916 on Twitter. And where can we find you? I'm Delbert Ebi Abdallah, and you can find me at Dr. Delbert on Twitter. And any student can find Dr. Keller where? In uh, my office. <laughs> there you go. I have email, and that's about as far as we go. We'll, email we'll and set up an Twitter. office appointment. We'll, we'll get him on Twitter. He got me on Twitter. If you're going to join the show, then I'm gonna you have to have to tweet. Dr. Moscatello is going to really appreciate you. You're going to have to tweet. Oh, yeah, she is on. She's active on Twitter, too. I know. Dr. Kim, or that's not her Twitter handle. What is her? I'm not giving it out without her permission. Okay. Anyway, I said too much already. That's Uh, unethical. That is unethical. (laughs) See, I caught myself though. I'm always thinking. There you go. So thanks everybody for listening. And thanks to Baha Namani for the music. All right. See you guys later. Have a good day.